Hey everyone, Tom Slemmer here. Welcome back to the Med Tech Talk podcast. This week is a real treat for me. I mean, every week's a treat. I have a Med Tech Talk podcast. What is not to love? And I get to talk to great folks in the Med Tech sector each and every week. So uh, thank you for this opportunity. But our guest today might be one of my favorites. He is uh, John McCutcheon. He is now uh, the president and CEO of Soterix Orthopedics. But the last time I interviewed him, he was uh, leading up a company called Emphasis Medical, which was developing a novel uh, endobronchial valve called uh, the Zephyr. And it was going to be a a novel and important and necessary treatment for emphysema. But unfortunately, it ran into a brick wall known as the uh, an advisory panel at the FDA. Uh, despite hitting endpoints in its trial and, and producing some positive results in follow-up uh, period after the, uh, after the trials, uh, the panel voted against approval for emphasis, and, uh, and that was all she wrote. I mean, it was, uh, it was done. It was put off and sold a couple of months later. Uh, it became really a, uh, a rallying cry for a lot of CEOs and investors in the medtech space who felt they were not getting a fair shake at the FDA, and uh, I'll say right here and now that that's not the case anymore. I hear more and more positive stories about the FDA, including from John McCutcheon. So it was definitely a tough time for MedTech, uh, a lot of frustration, and emphasis really seemed to be the final straw. And uh, I really came to admire John because he was very forthright in his assessment of the FDA's review. Uh, He didn't mince words. He was always very professional, but uh, he didn't hold back. And uh, as someone who has written about MedTech and talked to, to startup CEOs, there's always um, a tendency for, for leaders, for CEOs, for anyone really, to hold back a little bit, just uh, to make sure they don't, um, I guess, say something that they'll someday regret. So I, I was really glad I had this opportunity to catch up with John, who's now leading a, a very, again, a very cool company called Soterix that's doing super well in orthopedics, and we'll get into, uh, into what they're up to. Uh, but I had the opportunity to ask him if, uh, if he ever had any blowback or any regrets about uh, how frank he was at that time. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll let him answer that question in the podcast. So uh, it was uh, a great opportunity to reconnect with John. Thanks for, uh, for supporting this podcast so I can uh, have these conversations. And uh, we'll get into the discussion uh, not only about emphasis, but we really f- we'll focus on Soterix, the, uh, the challenges that even a, a 510K product can present and uh, also the challenges of selling a product that, uh, by its very nature, at least by its regulatory uh, classification, isn't, uh, isn't blazing new trails. So we'll uh, get into that story right now. But before I let you go, John told me after the interview that uh, he'll be at the MedTech Conference on May 31st in Minneapolis. I hope you will, too. Go to medtechconference.com to register. Please uh Sign up soon. We're, uh, our, our discount rate will be expiring at the end of the month, so please do not wait. Now let's get back into, or let's get into, this conversation with John McCutcheon of Soterix Orthopedics. John McCutcheon, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Tom. Thanks so much. Uh, pleasure to be here. It's, uh, it's great to have you, and uh, we'll get into this conversation a little bit later, this topic, but uh, as you and I talked about just before we, we pushed record we uh had conversations a decade ago that weren't as uh necessarily as positive as these but i think they really were uh defining for you and and uh i think uh uh i don't know i know i i uh 
you got a lot of respect for me for your frankness talking about the situation, but that's enough of a tease. Oh. <laughs> I want to open open this conversation talking about as I do with other guests. Just just try to find out how you found your way uh, into medtech. What was it uh, that first brought you to the sector? Yeah, so I think every job I've gotten in medtech has been through connection. You know, so a friend or um, you know business associate. And my first job was right out of college. A, a friend of mine, his mother had a friend working for Bentley Laboratories, which was a division of American Hospital Supply down in Southern California. And through that connection, I got an interview to a training program where they would take you know, young kids like me out of school, give them some training, and then put them in a sales territory. And through that process, I ended up selling Bentley oxygenators and Edwards Labs um, heart valves in the Tampa area in Florida for four years. And, and uh, what kept you in medtech? Uh, well, I've always loved, uh, kind of been a nerd, right? So I like science <laughs> and medicine. I like I like the the technical aspect of it. And I I didn't really have the desire to become a doctor. I wanted I had business ambitions as well. So it was a great way to to merge the two interests. And I always have felt somewhat entrepreneurial. Uh, and again, like the 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 science part. I also I think most of us in medtech like the fact that we're helping people, we're doing something important. And, uh, you know, it never feels like we're just making widgets. We're, we're making a difference. And uh, so I can live vicariously through the doctors and we work with and feel good about the patients that get treated in the process. That's great. And you were largely in the vascular space uh, for your early part of, the, of your career? Yeah, I was at cardiopulmonary and then moved from uh, Bentley to DVI, which is cardiology, and Perclose, which is also cardiology. So mainly started in, in uh, you know, again, that, that greater cardiopulmonary cardiology uh, sector. Right. And, and now I want to get into what we were sort of referring to uh, at the top, where you and I started talking when you were uh, president and CEO of Emphasis Medical, which was one of the, uh, the pulmonary right. startups that formed uh, in, the, uh, in the 90s and, and uh, really mature. Well, yeah, in the well, late 90s, right? And really kind mm-hmm. of right. Right. the sector came to, um, well, Started to see some results or lack of results uh, about ten or eleven years ago, and and I think emphasis uh, your experience with the FDA where you uh, you can get into the details, but you had a negative uh, of recommendation from an advisory board panel that just really completely I think floored the sector, floored medtech investors, including particularly your investors, and really seemed to be a a, a nadir for the. The relationship between medtech and, and the FDA things have improved since then, but you, uh, I mean, you you were remarkably frank in your assessment of the FDA at the time. I've I've wondered if uh, if you how you felt about your reaction at the time. If you ever regretted being so. Uh, I mean, you were polite and you were professional about it, but you were not uh, shy in expressing your disappointment with the outcome of uh, of the uh, advisory panel vote. Did that ever, uh, how did that ever come to, did that ever, did you ever come to regret that or, or did No, that... no, not at all. I, I, hopefully I was always professional about it, but I, it, it was a, uh, it, it was a hard experience and, uh, uh, something I wouldn't want to repeat. Uh, it was a great learning experience and, and some of my greatest joys in business have been with emphasis. And that was one of my greatest disappointments. I think if that were to happen today, it would be a completely different outcome. And, and as you said, Tom, that really was the nadir of the FDA for, for folks that haven't maybe been around as long as you and I have. 
you know, that was right on the heels of the, we we call it the whistleblower scandal at the FDA, where some of the internal uh, scientists went to Congress and, and the newspapers and were saying that the agency was playing favorites to industry. And they really got into a very, very conservative mode at that point in time. And we were unfortunate that our, our panel meeting came up that same, at the end of that summer where that occurred. And there was some transition. Uh, Dr. Schultz was moving on and changes within the agency. So a lot of things conspired or, or lined up to, to work against us. The technology is fantastic and does really great things for patients. It's a, it's a, it's a, a horrible affliction in emphysema, and there's so little that can be done for these patients. The good news out of it is that uh, the technology lives on with pulmonics, and I, you know, I, it's still 10 years later that they haven't gotten approval, but I believe that they will in this FDA environment, and that ultimately you know, U.S. patients will be able to benefit from it. I mean, it's never good to get results, uh, negative results, but what was it in particular about that vote that really kind of stuck with you? Uh, was it the the membership of the advisory panel that maybe wasn't uh, what it should be to review a, a device like, like uh, Emphasis's, or uh, or what what was exactly the, uh, the the problem that you saw? We we felt so we met our primary endpoints and most of our secondary. So my feeling going into the panel was that uh, I, I didn't recall a technology ever having a negative vote with uh, with those results. And in fact, just the opposite. Sometimes you can miss your endpoints and still get a favorable panel outcome. What I didn't anticipate, or we didn't anticipate, was how assertive the FDA was going to be with the um, panel in terms of alleging that the, the, there wasn't a clinical benefit, which is just not the case. And so what I found was uh, and this individual is uh, now retired, but there was a medical reviewer there who had done this with other companies before where she kind of took a personal interest in going after them. And, uh, and I think we fell into that, um, that category. Uh, Acor Medical goes way back as another one where it was a promising technology, but the FDA just decided that they wanted to you know, not let it get out there. The fortunate thing for this technology, that benefit won't accrue to, you know, to our early investors. Uh, it, it does live on, and I think the FDA will take the exact same device that we took to panel 10 years ago, and they will eventually approve it here in the state. It's been used safely and effectively internationally. I think we got, uh, we got our CE mark in 2013, I believe. And so it's been for sale in Europe for 15 years. 2003. 2003, excuse me. <laughs> I do you. that all the time. As yeah. I said, it was, it was a long time <laughs> ago. Missed a, missed a digit, yeah. yeah. It, it was a long time ago, yeah. And, uh, so, and, so anyway, it'll, it'll ultimately prevail, and, and people will see the benefit of it. And, uh, you know, that, those things happen. It's a, a great uh, life lesson, and, uh, but I think it, it teaches us to persevere and, uh, you know, look for the good stuff. Well, like I said, as a, as a reporter, it was one of the more uh, compelling stories because you were you – were, completely honest with your assessment. So I, I appreciate it then and, and I still appreciate it now. So, so kudos to well, you. Well, thank you. And I, and I know it, it led either directly or somewhat indirectly to your current role. Let's get into what you're doing now. Uh, That's right. Satirics, That's cause, right. Because you were, uh, you were going to steer clear of the PMA path for a while. Uh, how did you find That's your... true. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that conversation. <laughs> right. 
How did yeah. you find your way to Soterics uh, Orthopedics? Tell us about that. Yeah, like I said, every job I've ever gotten has been through connections. And so I was out networking and uh, through Verse and Ventures, some connections there. And uh, Josh Mackauer, who's a familiar name, where they were involved with a, um, a young surgeon inventor named Justin Salomon. Dr. Salomon's a practicing sports medicine physician at uh, Cedars in L.A., and he had lots of ideas and wanted to try to get some of these to market, uh, but hadn't done it before. And so Josh uh, made the introduction and, and advised Justin to you know, go for venture funding. Uh, and I, on a handshake, agreed to run the Series A financing, and then I would become the, um, the CEO once we uh, incorporated and got that off the ground. That was the summer of 2010. And it was a change in direction for me. I guess I'd done that before in my career, going from cardiopulmonary, cardiology, then into pulmonary with emphasis, and now making a big turn into orthopedics, which is a very different space. Uh, so that I always saw that as an, a challenge and an opportunity that I, I was excited to, to, to take on. Uh, now, it would have seemed like a, a counter move a, a bit going into orthopedics at that time. There wasn't, there was some innovation, but not a lot. Uh, you know, the, the, the hips right. and knees were everything, and then there was some little stuff here and there. Uh, were there concerns right. moving into the sector? Because as it turns out, I think it was a great long-term bet, because now we're seeing a lot of innovative therapies in yeah. orthopedics being approved. Well, there, I had a lot of advice that, that it was a tough space and that uh, it may not be the, the best place to go into. But again, it goes back to clinical need and, and is there something of value for the patients. When I did my diligence at the time, there were a lot of startups that had not been successful in the space, but mostly they had products that were uh, somewhat me too, you know, marginally improved from what was out there and uh, really hard to differentiate uh, clinically. And this space is really known for distributor relationships, selling on relationships, and not really clinical differentiation. So, uh, you know, naively or, 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 or right, I decided to jump into it and with the belief that if we showed that we had a clinical benefit, that we could do something really special. Well, tell us a bit about the products. What does it do that's, uh, that is so special? So the meniscal repair market, which is what we do, is a really large market opportunity, but really underserved from an industry standpoint and from a clinical standpoint. So there are about a million meniscal surgeries a year in the U.S., and you read about it all the time. Uh, some, you know, uh, some famous uh, athlete will go in with a knee injury and they need their meniscus repaired. The vast majority of those meniscus surgeries end up being meniscectomies, where they trim out the, t the tear and try to smooth it out uh, with the goal of relieving or alleviating the symptoms. But there's endless data that shows that for um, every meniscectomy, you, you dramatically increase the risk of arthritis later in life. And sometimes the effects aren't even later in life. There's a, a paper, this just came out last year, late last year, that NFL players who had had even a 10% meniscectomy, which is a really small amount of tissue to remove, uh, did uh, significantly worse in their combine scores than those that hadn't. So there's a real degradation in their performance uh, when you do a meniscectomy. What they believe is when they're doing it, well, if I just have this removed, I can get back to sport right away and I'll just deal with the uh, consequences later in life, but um, it, it's probably naive that the consequences do in fact happen uh, right away. 
There's also this clinical belief that the meniscus is almost an inert piece of tissue. It's, they, they believe that it won't heal uh, under many circumstances, many types of tears. And our clinical and business thesis has always been, well, it's a little bit circular. If you, if you can't repair it acutely in, in a, you know, a really good reduction of the tear, then of course it won't heal. But if we can provide the technology that gives you a good surgical um, result acutely, that the tissue will in fact heal. And that's what we've uh, believed when we started and fortunately have, have shown uh, since we've been doing this. Hey everyone, this is Tom. I want to take a quick break from this conversation to save you a little money. If you register for the MedTech Conference before April 30th, that is Monday, you will uh, get in for the low, low price of $12.95. And if you tack on the MedTech Talk code on top of that, you'll save yourself even a little bit more. So go to medtechconference.com, register before Monday to get in at our discounted price. You'll see me, you'll see John McCutcheon, you'll see lots of other great folks in MedTech. Go to medtechconference.com to sign up right now. Now let's get back into this conversation. How did the story play when you were trying to raise that Series A? Was this a difficult uh, opportunity to convey to, to investors? Yeah, I, I was. Uh, you, you said how forthright I was with you, and maybe sometimes <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, too, too straightforward. I recall one venture um, investor, not to be named, said, well, John, if I went out and asked you know, 10 thought leaders in this space if what you're saying you know, makes sense, what would they say? And I said, well, I think they'd say I'm crazy, you know, <laughs> and that was the truth. I mean, nobody believed that this was the case, but it wasn't just blind faith. We'd done a lot of research and, you know, Dr. Solomon had these, um, uh, these theories that made sense to me. And I, I know that medicine, there's a lot of times that, you know, dogma becomes ingrained without real you know, clinical science behind it. And when we did the literature searches, we couldn't find any basis, real basis for these beliefs. And so it was worth the risk. And we found the right investors who kind of saw the vision and, and came along with us. It wasn't for everybody because, again, if you needed to go out and, and show to your partners that you would talk to 10 or 20 surgeons and they all said this made complete sense, you weren't going to be able to do that in the early days. Now you could. But uh, getting started, it was uh, you know, talking to a number of folks until we found the ones that um, you know, shared the vision or were willing to take the risk with us. So that was one of your early investors was 5AM, and you had some other investors as well. Were those Series A investors, did, did you find some way to convince them, or did you just find some way to, con- to get them to believe, as you did, that there was something there that would eventually emerge? Yeah, it was Verson and 5AM were the Series A investors. And again, I think they took a a big leap with us. Uh, And it's a combination of look at the opportunity, right? There's a big enough unmet clinical need here. It's a real clinical need. There there are uh, numerous patients that suffer from this. And there's an opportunity. And we could be wrong when you start out. But the data that we provided uh, gave enough uh, cover, if you will, or enough uh, hope that we might be right. And the story could have evolved several ways. One is that we started treating you know, hundreds of patients and then found out that we were wrong, and that would have been horrific. You know, that would have been a horrible outcome. 
but the data didn't that that existed didn't support that. And in fact, uh, the more we've done and the more aggressive our our customers have gone into done in terms of repairing torn menisci, uh, the more favorable the outcomes. It just gets better and better. And our thesis has really been held up probably beyond what I had hoped when we started. Mm-hmm. And and did the regulatory path come into uh, come into play with these decisions? Were there investors also at that time looking for uh, a five ten k rep? Yeah, you talked about that earlier, and I was definitely at the point in my career, uh, as much as I love the clinical side and the PMA work, I, I was uh, a little bit shy at that point and wanted to get into something without that sort of regulatory risk. So our first product here was a Class 1 510K exempt device, and that certainly had appeal that we could get into the market very quickly and start testing some of our clinical hypotheses in the market in a way that you, it's hard to do sometimes in a controlled trial. It's, 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 it's better to go out and uh, get it into the real world and uh, let things play out. And then subsequent to that, we've uh, introduced several class two, 510K review devices. And, you know, the FDA is in a different place now than uh, in 2008. And they're very collaborative, and, and uh, it's just been very easy, an easy process. You still have to do the work. You, you can't. There's no shortcuts, but the rules are clear, and uh, they're very fair. And it's, uh, the regulatory path has been very, very smooth. So, how many products do you have approved at this point? So we have. Uh, we're on our third generation. We just announced uh, 510K clearance uh, two weeks ago. And this product is a further enhancement on the on the theme. Uh, we're always looking to make the user experience for you know, the surgeon uh, make it as easy as possible. The other thing in this round or this uh, particular innovation is focusing on manufacturability and cost of goods. So my uh, one of my heroes is Dr. Simpson, John Simpson, and he taught us early on that you know you you really have to get it right for the customer first, the patient, the doctor. And then later on, you worry about manufacturability and design for manufacturability. So we followed kind of his, uh, as I understand, you know, his formula and just focused on iterating the design and not freezing it until we felt like we really had the right product. And so with this version, we've invested a lot in metal injection molding, which is a way to make you know, metal parts in high volume uh, that were otherwise they're machined, and it, it takes a, a really long time, and it's costly and hard to scale. So this round will help bring our margins uh, up, our cost of goods down, and really allow us to scale uh, as we go forward. So how is how green was the grass on on the uh, the five ten k side of things? Was it uh, what you had anticipated? Were there were there difficulties that you hadn't foreseen? Uh, how did that play out for you? Well, I, I, I guess I'm more conservative than I used to be. And we had advisors that said, well, there's some testing you probably don't have to do. There's like, for instance, we have suture in our device and you have, there's long-term implant testing. And the suture has been uh, around forever and used by other uh, manufacturers. But we felt, well, there's a chance that the FDA will come back and say, let's get, we need more information on that. So let's proactively or prospectively just do the testing, even if we think we can rationalize or justify not doing it. So we tried to preempt anything that might come up so that we're not later you know, hung up on a, on a technicality. And that strategy has paid off. And, and we had uh, this last round, there were just no questions at all. It, it was really smooth sailing. 
But I think that's because we did all the work up front and made it easy for the FDA to make that decision, right? So we didn't we didn't leave any boxes unchecked for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, I want to get into commercial launch in a sec, but I did also want to ask about the you did a capital uh, um, capital royalty fund. Uh, I guess that was it a debt in 2015. How did you right? How did you swing that? Were you working off the revenue of the of the first generation of the device? Yeah, it was a time where we were transitioning from our first generation to our second generation, and the first generation was was basically proving the you know the clinical thesis, but it, it didn't have the user interface that was going to be uh, scalable. You know, in a classic medical device, the first the first versions usually will you know has a fuss factor, and this one did. So we were developing the second generation, and we met with the folks at CRG. And they were very um, uh, just aggressive in a positive way. I mean, they were very much, hey, let's do something so that you guys have your capital needs covered while you're developing the second generation device and we'll partner with you. And they've been great to work with. So uh, it's just been a really good group to work with. We're glad we got them involved when we did. And it was also at a time, and you know, the, the, the venture market, it has these um, you know, ups and downs and ebbs and flows. And at that point in time, it was a little bit tighter. And so it was available capital from a good, strong partner. So it's, it was um, you know, really fortuitous. Are there opportunities for strategic investors in this space, in orthopedics? Yes, we talk to all the strategics all the time. They you know, keep them in the loop of our progress. Um, I don't think there's as much activity as in the cardiovascular space or the vascular space. Uh, so the for some reason the orthopedic companies have evolved differently. It doesn't mean it doesn't. It, it, it never happens, but they're not as uh, as likely to invest early on and take risks. They more like to see things fully. Baked, right? You really de-risk uh, and even market de-risk, like taking it through um, adoption. Uh, that's pretty much the, the you know the the, the uh, environment within orthopedics. And what has the uh, the commercial launch been like? We we hear with other devices, of course, reimbursement, uh, talking to payers and such can be a, can be a challenge. Is that something that you don't need to worry about? Are you selling merely to the uh, the docs and the hospitals? It's it's some of both, but we've been really fortunate in this space. There's a there's reimbursement codes in place for meniscal repairs, so we are covered under those. We didn't have to establish any new uh, coding or coverage. Uh, the other thing for small companies, one product device companies, it's often t- hard to get shelf space because now you have to go through these value-added committee meetings at, at most institutions. And their, their job is to prevent this proliferation of devices on the shelf. And, and so it's often difficult to get through because our device is so unique and is not a substitute for something that they already have that process has been really straightforward for us. So we don't find ourselves uh, locked out of the, um, uh, the OR or the hospital buying group if we have surgeon support. So that's been uh, really great to see. So we've not suffered from uh, reimbursement or payment issues or getting on the shelf. Uh, the other thing we were told when we started looking at orthopedics is that it's just very difficult to access the surgeons. And we haven't found that to be the case either. Uh, I think that's again goes back to not having a Me Too technology, but something that is really clinically differentiated. Uh, the surgeons will see us even if they you know, aren't familiar with us if we're bringing something uh, 
clinically important to them. How do you thread that needle from having a device that isn't a Me Too device is something that completely be differentiated from an existing product, but yet uh, could follow a 510K uh, path at the, at the FDA? <laughs> yeah. that, that seems like a nice, uh, a nice space to be in. Yeah. It seems inconsistent, doesn't it? Because you know, the <laughs> 510K says it's substantially equivalent, but we also have patents, you know, that show that it's not, you know, it's not the same. And the FDA recognizes that that there's technical differentiations, even as you're um, trying to establish uh, substantial equivalence. So it, it can seem um, somewhat contradictory. Uh, but for us, it comes down to what's the clinical utility, and can you, the types of t- meniscal tears that we're repairing. It really depends on the morphology or the you know the shape uh, orientation of the tears on whether they're able to treat those today with existing technologies, and they can't. And so we are unique in the sense that we can uh, apply a stitch in, in a various patterns that will reduce any tear uh, you know of any shape in a meniscus. And we're at, we really are complementary to the other tools that are out there. Um, you know, our our thought leaders, our our top surgeons will say that Soterics, the Nova Stitch, is, is an important part of their, uh, of their arsenal, their clinical arsenal, but they, they need other tools as well to, to fully manage meniscal tears. So we can make that claim clinically, but from a regulatory reimbursement standpoint, it's still meniscal repair. Uh, we're just able to expand that, that market. Great. And just final question to store, or maybe questions, what's, uh, what's the future hold for Soterics? Where are you with... Uh with uh, staffing right now, are you adding? And, and how does the story uh, ultimately go? It's uh, being a one product company or, or one platform company, it's hard to, I guess, grow to an IPO stage. So I imagine M&A is a likely route. Yeah, I always try to keep an open mind up, you know, all the, all the various paths, right? You never know how things are going to play out. But I, I personally uh, kind of wake up every morning thinking about how to, how to drive success within the company versus how to you know, think about an exit. And right now we're, we are growing. I think we've got about 60 employees total. We changed our distribution last year from an indirect um, distributor network to more of a direct model. And so we spent most of the latter half of last year uh, bringing on a small team. We've got 12 territories and just completed the training of that group. And uh, so we, we got started and got a big footprint with the distributors but really with the clinical sale, we want to go deeper and felt that we needed the, the direct model to do that. So we're really focused. Our, our mission is save the meniscus. And, and we just, when we see in the newspaper, somebody had a meniscectomy, we, we, we collectively cringe and think that's the wrong thing for the patients and really want to convince, you know, the world and the surgical community that there are ways to repair and that it's the right thing to do. And, best for the long-term uh, you know, outcomes for the patients. That's great. What is the, the decision like to go from a distributor to, to direct? Is there an equation that you, you merely follow that says this is the right time when we do this, or is it really kind of a, a gut check as to knowing that this is the time we need to bring it in-house? It's a little of both, but it's, it's some analytics. So the, the nice thing about the distributor network is it, it's a you know, low overhead way to get out broadly. And then we track, you know, big believer in analytics and, and also, uh, you know, trying to find, um, you know, the truth in your numbers, right? What, what is actually happening? So you can, you can kid yourself sometimes that you're growing, but you may be growing the wrong way. For example, 
you could continue to grow top line by adding new distributors. But what you really want to show is that within a distributor, they're growing, you know, so that you can scale that. And so what we found is we had some really strong distributor partners, and we still have kept uh, work with those today. So, so we haven't gone completely direct. But there were a number of distributors that just stalled out and were not able to increase the, um, uh, the revenue within their territories when we knew that the market opportunity was really, really strong. So we felt in those cases we needed to control that, and it was better for us to go direct where we won't just take in the product to you know, basically our, our, our buddies or our friends that we know our network. We're out there selling the clinical mission, and it is a missionary sale, and so that's better done through a direct sales force. So once we established that, we could get some traction with distributors, but not the traction that we were really – or the depth or penetration – that we really believe is ultimately where we're, where we need to go and will go. Uh, we decided to start uh, going more direct. Excellent. All right. Well, just a final open question. Anything that uh, our listeners should know about? Are you going to be uh, achieving any milestones lately, or anything else? Any questions I haven't asked that I should have asked about Soterix? No, we'll have some more press releases. We've got uh, more patents in, in the pipeline that will be uh, issued soon. Some notices of allowance. Um, we're going to be attending all the major meetings. Uh, I, my, I guess my main message is, I and mean, when I give talks at the investor meetings, I, I tell people, you know, I have two goals. It's usually to obviously to promote Soterix as, as a great investment, but also try to convince people not to have a meniscectomy if they ever have a, a, a knee injury, and because uh, we really you know, believe that's just the wrong thing to do, and you're 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 likely to end up with one unless you're a well-informed patient and. Uh, so everybody should uh, preserve their meniscus as long as possible. That's a great way to end the message. Well, you you certainly sound a lot happier than it did when I last interviewed you 10 years ago. So, so I'm, <laughs> I hope so. I'm happy things worked out, and I'm really grateful you took some time to join us today. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate it. And that is a wrap. Thank you, MedTech Talk podcast listeners, for indulging me and for allowing me to talk to cool folks like John McCutcheon every week. Thank you for uh, subscribing. Thank you for giving us ratings. Thank you for telling your friends. Thank you above and beyond everything else. Thank you for listening and for your support. Go to uh, medtechconference.com. Sign up for the MedTech Conference before Monday, April 30th, and you'll get in for uh, the low price of $12.95. And don't forget to tack on the MedTech Talk code to save a little bit more money. That's it for this week, folks. Tune in next week for another great tale of innovation. And again, don't forget to join us on May 31st in Minneapolis.